Christopher Sheffield. I'm the pastor of Smith Street Baptist Church in Vidalia, Georgia, just about an hour and 45 minutes from here. And uh, I've had the great privilege of interacting and being a part of this association for the last two or three years, I believe. Uh, And it has been a wonderful, wonderful blessing to me, both uh, uh, personally and also as a pastor. Uh, I'm thankful for the crowd that's here this evening. I'm thankful for all the new faces. Uh, it's wonderful to see so many. And, uh, and so I, I pray that our evening will be blessed. I pray that God will use the time that we spend together around His Word to His glory and to your good. Uh, I've been given the responsibility of speaking specifically to uh, the need for redemption or the anticipation of redemption. We've taken the theme of the doctrines of grace Uh, the five points of Calvinism, if you will, as they were outlined uh, by the Synod of Dort in the 17th century in response to the remonstrants who had posited five points of uh, of the doctrine of salvation uh, that they understood and as was espoused by their late professor Jacob Arminius, who had since died that synod was called and convened specifically for the purpose of responding to that, and they, uh, believe it or not, we know it as TULIP, even though that's not originally how it was formulated. In fact, total depravity would have been the third point. But for our sakes, as we typically understand it and interact with it as the first point of our soteriology or our doctrine of salvation, we come to the bad news. And the truth is, there is no good news if there is no bad news. The goodness of God means nothing if His severity is not first understood. As Paul says, behold the goodness and the severity of God. I have the task of laying out for us this evening the severity of God against sin. If you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and I want us to be looking this evening at verses 9 through 20. Verses 9 through 20. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. If you found your place there, In God's Word, let us now attend to the reading of God's Word with the ears of faith and understanding as He speaks to us from His Word. Beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? No. In no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. Their tongues, excuse me, with their tongues they have used deceit. 
The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in His sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this time which You have given us to come together around Your Word. We would pray, Heavenly Father, that these words which we have heard with our outward ears, by the effectual working of Your Holy Spirit, would be inwardly engrafted upon our hearts, that it may take root and bear fruit within our lives. To the glory of your name and the good of your church, amen. At the turn of the 20th century, the Times of London had solicited several famous thinkers and writers and philosophers of the day and asked them to interact with the question, what is wrong with the world today? The shortest letter submitted in response to the correspondence that they had asked for was also perhaps the most illustrative of what we're going to be speaking about today. The writer responded in this way. He said, Dear Sirs, in response to the question, What is wrong with the world today? I am. Yours faithfully, G.K. Chesterton. They say that brevity is the soul of wit, and that statement perfectly illustrates the point. In it, he acknowledges his own personal responsibility for what is wrong with the world, but makes a a broader statement about the condition of humanity as a whole, that individually and corporately as a race, we are fundamentally fallen. In the text before us this evening, the Apostle Paul in making his case, and it is a legal case, if you will. In the first three chapters of the book of Romans, as he paves his way and lays the foundation for the gospel of Christ, he begins by making his case against all of humanity. He sums up his argument in this segment of Scripture. Before he begins upon speaking on the gospel, he must first... Lay low the pride of man and bring it to utter futility. And so he does. And he does it with a rabbinical device, which in those days would have been under, would have been called a string of pearls, if you will. A long segment of scriptures being quoted one after the other after the other. So that the force and repetition of the word of God being brought to bear upon the consciences of sinners would yield conviction of sin and grant them a sense of their need of Christ and the gospel that He proclaimed. 
And so in this place of Scripture, that's what Paul endeavors to do. It is interesting, many uh, of us here this evening, if we were perhaps asked to be put on the spot, what kind of an apologetic, what kind of apologetical school do we, do we find ourselves in? Many of us would say reformed or presuppositional apologetics. Essentially claiming that the Word of God at the end of the day is self-authenticating. That it is all that is necessary to bring the sinner to faith in Christ and to bring the saint to perfection. It's implied in the words of the Apostle Paul. He could have made any number of arguments. He could have chosen any number of ways to address the issue of man's depravity. He could have appealed to experience. He could have appealed to history. He could have appealed to any number of things, but instead, he appeals to the simple formula, it is written. How does the sinner know he is a sinner? For the Bible tells him so. So this evening, let us take the opportunity and look for a moment at the case that Paul endeavors to lay out. And as we consider the issue of man's depravity, I'm going to say... This is one of the rare instances where perhaps I'll preach a sermon where I'll leave the gospel to another preacher, but I don't want to, I don't want to tread on anybody else's topic for later on. Let me just say this. This will be one of the times where we get together where you can't afford to miss one of the messages. So make sure you're here for the entire time. But I bring you the bad news. The bad news of man's sin. The bad news of man's depravity. Notice first with me this evening as we look at the text, we'll notice three things. And I don't take notes when I listen to sermons, but if you do, we'll notice first three points the Apostle Paul desires to make are first, that man's depravity is universal. Secondly, that man's depravity is comprehensive. And thirdly, that man's depravity is insurmountable. Look with me at the first part of the text as we consider that man's depravity is indeed universal. He says, what then? Are we better than they? That is, the Jews. He says, in no wise. For we before proved that both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. That is, they are under the power, dominion, penalty of sin. Now, how does he back this up? He backs it up, as I said with a series of texts cited from several passages of Scripture. Among them are Psalm 14, Psalm 5, uh, Psalm 140, Isaiah 59, and Psalm 36. All of these he's going to interact with at different times. So here in this place he says, we are all under sin, and it's important to note then that everything that follows this point is meant to reinforce this fact. You are under sin. How does the sinner know he's under sin? He's about to tell us. Because the temptation as we go forward into the series of verses he's going to quote is for you to assume that he can only be talking about Adolf Hitler. And it's simply not true. Because again, remember, he's making the point that man's depravity is universal. It touches every single one of us. The description he's giving is of me. The description he gives is of you. And so listen attentively. He says there, as I've 
As I pointed out in verse 10, it is written. And citing Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, he begins his string, if you will, his string of pearls. Quoting there, he says, there is none righteous. No, not one. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Isn't it interesting that the prophet and the apostle seem to emphasize this point? There is none righteous. What is the most common response of any man who might be listening? Surely, brother, it's a generalization. Surely there are some exceptions to this rule. You could not say that everyone is unrighteous. You cannot say that there is no one who seeks after God. And the prophet and the apostle bearing witness by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit declare, No, not one. Don't misunderstand me. Don't endeavor to read between the lines. There is none righteous. They are all together become unprofitable. They are all together become sinful. There is none righteous. Man's depravity is universal. Every human being that enters the human race by ordinary generation from his mother and his father is under the curse and penalty of sin. And there he abides, but for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The doctrine of total depravity is one that sometimes is referred to as the doctrine of total inability. Lorraine Bettner prefers this description, and in some sense so do I. Because in thinking about depravity very often, we have a tendency to consider all of the good pagans we know. People who don't know God and they wouldn't know Him if they met Him in a 40-acre field, and yet they say they're good law-abiding citizens, They take care of their children. They exhibit an extraordinary amount of common grace. Well, surely these people are not the ones to whom the Apostle speaks. And the point must be stressed. These are exactly the people to whom the Apostle speaks. This is precisely who he intends to address. We are all under sin. It is universal. In the second point, he addresses the point that man's depravity is comprehensive. It's comprehensive. That is, that it touches every aspect of our being. And notice what he says there in verse 13. Speaking to the fact, now he's already addressed that it's universal, no one is accepted, he begins to describe the comprehensiveness of it and he uses a couple of analogies. The analogies are the lips and the feet. But there, in verse 13, he begins, Their throat is an open sepulcher. We recall the words of our Lord Jesus who said, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A sweet well does not produce bitter water. Nor does a bitter water produce, a bitter well produce sweet water. If from the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, then the lips are sometimes the best indicator of the spiritual state of an individual. 
So here he says their throat is an open sepulcher. Notice, not a sepulcher, not a tomb, not a, just a grave, an open grave. One where the lid which should have been there sealing its contents is gone. And the human decay and the rotten stench is permeating throughout the locality of where it's at. Exposing the body to the reproach and shame of the world as they go by, viewing it repulsed. It is an open sepulcher, an open grave. It is a foul and disgusting thing to behold. Here he describes that man's depravity is illustrated in the man's tongue, rising from his heart, which is steeped in sin. It is an open grave. He says, with the tongue, with their tongues, they have used deceit. There in the Greek, it's in the perfect tense. It means they do it and they continuously do it. It's a continuing state. It is something that they practice routinely. He says their tongues, with their tongues they have used deceit and the poison of asps is under their lips. We know about vipers, rattlesnakes. You live in this part of Georgia, you'd better know about them. If you're an outdoorsman especially. I'm not. But needless to say, well I was, Brother Thomas took me four-wheeling not too long ago. That was That was interesting. Needless to say, when you run into uh, anybody who knows anything about these snakes knows that their fangs are where? They're tucked up under their lips, out of sight, until they're prepared to strike. And when they do, those fangs come forth and they are prepared to pierce whatever object they come at, injecting its deadly poison. Here he says, the poison of asps is under their lips. It's a picture, if you will, of how a snake keeps its fangs. You may look at someone, you may know someone very well, you may think you know them. And sometimes we are very surprised at the things that can come across the lips of those who we think we know the best. They strike at us and they strike into us as the poison of an asp. He goes on in verse 14 and he says, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. This is the analogy. This is the analogy he uses regarding our mouths. And in our day when we're so very quick to think that if we have somehow subdued or, or brought into subjection our bodies so that we do not do the things we ought not to do, or that we are doing the things that we ought to do, well, then there is the tongue. And who can bridle it? None. Save the Holy Spirit. Then he moves on into an analogy about their feet in verse 15. He says their feet are swift to shed blood. One need only to look at the history of humanity from time immemorial to the present day to know that that's absolutely true. Sometimes we marvel at what was done by Hitler in World War II and the systematic annihilation of some six million Jews. And then we forget that almost every communist dictator that followed Hitler did many, many more times the murder than he ever thought of doing if he had had the chance. 
Stalin is said to be responsible for the murder of some 50 million Russians. Mao Zedong, responsible for the murder of countless hundreds of millions. Man is a competitive creature by nature and it's evidenced by his willingness to compete in the shedding of blood. There is no end to man's ingenuity and his imaginativeness and nowhere is this more evident in his ability to make war and to wage it upon his own race. We can look at the animals. We can look at the other creatures in God's kingdom. But never in any of those instances do we see any creature so skilled in bringing, to an, bringing an end to life to those who are within its own species. It really is an argument against Darwinism, I would imagine. Their feet are swift to shed blood. They are ready to shed blood. They are prepared. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Misery is a theological term. It's one that you should know. Misery speaks of the effects of sin. The Baptist Confession of Faith speaks of sin and its misery, as do all the Reformed confessions. That's something you should understand. The sin, as it were, very often, has a, it casts a long shadow over those by whom it's perpetrated as well as those to whom it is committed against. Very often, those who would... Those who would dispense with conservative ideals in our nation today very often point to the misery of sin as the reason why we should not do thus and such. And yet, it is sin that brings about the misery. We think about children born out of wedlock. We think about the effects of STDs and disease. We think about wars and famine and all of the other things that are brought about by man's sinfulness. These things indeed are the miseries of sin in our own lives, in our own marriages, with our own children. Many of us who have had the opportunity of raising children now as those children are grown, we experience the misery of our own shortcomings as fathers and mothers to our grief. I don't think there's any parent who makes it to see their child grown up as an adult where they don't look back with some regret about some way in which they were not as faithful as they should have been or they were derelict in some duty that God required of them in the bringing their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Indeed, this is misery. It is the shadow. It is the effect of sin. It is what comes with sin. And it's a fitting word, misery. He says there, destruction and misery are in their ways. Many of us know by experience, especially as fathers with our tempers, so often that's exactly what we can leave in our path in our homes. A path of destruction and misery. When our tempers are left unchecked, or our sins are not kept at bay. Or mortified. Verse 17, he says, In the way of peace they have not known. Verse 18, he really gives a summation of everything he's already described. He has really laid up into this point 12 charges against all of humanity. And they're going to beg a question, which I intend to inter interact with in a minute. 
But he says in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God before their eyes. This sums it up. It is estimated that some 90% of humanity believes in a higher being. They believe in a God. They believe that there is a, a being higher than humanity. And yet for all of that, for how religious man is, it is astounding how little he fears the being he perceives to be over him in creation as well as in judgment. He does not fear God. There's a term that was coined some years ago, and I think it's a helpful one. It talks about a practical atheism. While Americans profess, I believe, to be something like 72% of Americans would profess to be Christians, in reality, the vast majority of not only America, but also the professing church are practically atheistic. That is, they live their lives without any recognition of God without any understanding of His authority over them in any given situation. They live, as it were, in ignorance, willful and deliberate ignorance of what He requires of them. It is an inability as well as an unwillingness to turn to God and to walk in His ways. Man's depravity is universal. Man's depravity is comprehensive. It touches every part of his being. But lastly, let us note that man's depravity is insurmountable. Paul closes out his argument in verses 19 and 20 by drawing two fundamental conclusions about the case he has just made against humanity. And they are these. Verse 19. Know we now that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law. Here he, can, he conceives of the law in the broad sense of being the entire Old Testament. For everything he has quoted from so far has not been from the books of Moses. They have been from the prophets and the Psalms. He says, what things the, soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that is all mankind. And for what purpose? Is it for the purpose so that man may know God's law and walk in obedience to it? So that he may attain a righteousness which may merit God's favor? So that he may indeed profess that righteousness to God and re-enter into communion with Him? God forbid, he says, in so many places, but here notice what he says. Why is he given this law? We know that they are given so that those who are under the law, that what? Every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. Here is the verdict of the trial of man before a righteous and holy God. Guilty. But if you're reading here and you're understanding the words of the Apostle Paul, you will notice that there is one conspicuously absent element. It is a defense. There is none. There is no defense because there is no defense. All of the world stands speechless with their hands over their mouths in conviction before a holy and righteous God for their sin, their depravity, which is universal, comprehensive, 
and insurmountable. The first conclusion then is this. All of the world is guilty. No one may escape this sentence. And in verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in His sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. All of the world before God is guilty. And no one may redeem themselves through their own good works. It is not as though if we have more good works than bad works, we can overcome our depravity. Our depravity is insurmountable. It cannot be overcome. It cannot be outweighed by our works of righteousness. Why? For the simple reason that our works of righteousness are as filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. Even the plowing of the wicked, we're told by the prophet, is sin. On the, on the best day of any unbeliever, he has done that which was motivated from wrong motives. Not the glory of God, but instead His own glory, His own goodness. For all of the philanthropy in the world, there is not one deed that merits the favor of God. Why? Because it is done for the wrong reason and for the glory of another. A glory which God will not share. With all this said, I'd like us to take some time to consider that in light of what the Apostle Paul has said here and in many other places of Scripture, which we've alluded to, the fathers of our faith throughout the ages have, for various reasons, I mentioned the canon the Synod of Dort in the 17th century, have found it necessary to compete throughout successive generations with those men who rose up in different days to assert that indeed man's depravity is not universal. It is not comprehensive. It is not insurmountable. To these the witness of the church has been through successive generations that that is not the case. That man's depravity and his inability are complete. The church in the Synod of Dort said it in this way. Mankind, because of their rebellion, brought upon themselves blindness, terrible darkness, futility, distortion of judgment in their minds, perversity, defiance, and hardness in their hearts and wills, and finally, impurity in all their emotions. The question is asked, if man is totally depraved, does that mean that every man is as bad as he could be? The answer is no. But it does mean that every man is as bad off as he could be. You say, I don't understand the distinction. Consider the Titanic. It had one destination, and it was the bottom of the ocean. And it really did not matter what class you were riding in. If you were on the upper decks with the wealthy or in the bottom of the hull you were all headed to the same place, death. This is the illustration of depravity. It doesn't matter how well a person may conform their lives to certain external standards in their their lives. Indeed, their destination is still the same. Even if their deeds are righteous in themselves, their motives are necessarily wrong because they do not do it in love for God, in faith to Christ, and in obedience to God's Word.
The canons of Dort continue. Therefore, all people who are conceived in sin are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. Without the grace and the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God, to reform their distorted nature, or even to dispose themselves unto that reform. It's an astounding statement. Does man have free will? In a sense, he does. But in his unregenerate state, in the unbelieving state, in the state to which he was born, he has the will only to sin and unrighteousness. I heard one use the illustration of a turtle on a fence post. If you're walking down the road and you see a turtle on a fence post, what do you instinctively know? Someone put him there. It is like the Christian. The Christian is nothing more than a turtle on the fence post. If he's there, he had to have been put there. If we are righteous, we had to have been made righteous, for we could not have achieved righteousness on our own. You say, then what then is sin? Depravity is like being on the ground around that fence post. That turtle had the freedom to go anywhere on the ground he jolly well pleased. But where he did not have the freedom to go was to the fence post. Just as we did not have the ability or the will or the desire to go to God. I've used this illustration many times. Man may boast of his free will and yet there is this problem. There are many areas in the natural realm where we acknowledge that we have no freedom. I can remember as a boy in high school falling in love with my pastor's daughter. I was young and ignorant, and she didn't like me. It was a, something of a love triangle. She liked another fella. But oh, how I loved her, and I hung around her, and I was at my pastor's house all the time. And she was content to let me hang around. We were friends. But she was never going to, she was never going to reciprocate the love that I had for her. When I realized finally that it was over, I came to this realization. I could not change the way I felt. I did not enjoy being in that situation. I did not enjoy being, having love for someone who did not reciprocate it, and yet I could do nothing about that. I did not have the freedom of changing the fact that I loved her. Many of us can say the same things for those that we love. And may I say, you can say the same thing for people you don't love. You can say the same thing for colors you like and colors you don't like. When you walk into a house going with your wife, there's a reason why you almost always disagree. She loves the house and you hate it. Why? If will were so free, then why couldn't you just change it? Why couldn't you just say, I will to like this house. I will to love this woman. I will to go to, to do this or to do that. These are all things that maybe I don't like, but I'm going to will to like them. You can't. If I were to take a hungry lion who'd not been fed for some six weeks, starving and emaciated in his cage, I bring him a side of beef, raw and nasty, and I lay it before him. But next to it, I had a chef from Atlanta prepare the nicest Caesar salad that anyone could make. What do you think that lion's going to eat? Does the lion not have... Does the lion, does the lion not have the freedom? Does he not have the ability to go and to eat the Caesar salad? He may have the freedom to, but he does not have the ability. 
Because he does not have the will. Because it is against his very nature. That is how we are in sin. Conceived in sin, from our mothers and our fathers, we do not desire God, just as a lion doesn't desire lettuce. We do not desire the things of God. Instead, we desire sin. We desire wickedness. We are, as the prophet Job said, we drink iniquity like water. What is your favorite thing? The sinner says, sin is my favorite thing. He is by nature that way. The Baptist Confession of Faith puts it in this way. In chapter 9, verse, uh, paragraph 3, it says, Man by his fall into a state of sin has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as by natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Lorraine Bettner in the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination states it this way. And if you don't have that book, I want to encourage you and say, it's perhaps the most comprehensive statement on the doctrines of grace in print today. I'm sure there are others, but to my knowledge, it's one of the best for a couple of reasons. He's not as complicated as you might expect somebody from Princeton to be. He's, he's pretty good. He's pretty understandable. And he borrows freely from other sources. He's very pastoral. And he's very good at communicating and bringing the truth down into an understandable fashion. It's about 450 pages. It'll take you some time to slug through it. But I encourage you to it. It would be a, a, a worthy endeavor for you. I think you'd profit from it. But in that place, in, on verse, uh, in, in the first section he deals with total depravity, he makes this statement. The doctrine of total inability, which declares that men are dead in sin, does not mean that men are equally bad, nor that any man is as bad as he could be, nor that anyone in entirely, is entirely destitute of virtue, nor that human nature is evil in itself, nor that man's spirit is inactive, and much less does it mean that the body is dead. What it does mean is that since the fall, man rests under the curse of sin and that he is actuated by wrong principles. That is, his actions are brought about from wrong principles and that he is wholly unable to love God or do anything meriting salvation. His corruption is extensive, but not necessarily intensive. This is the doctrine as we understand it. This is the doctrine I'm laboring for you to understand this evening. And it bears with it many implications. And in the time that I have remaining, in the few minutes I have remaining, I want to address some of those. If this doctrine is true, if this is what we believe, if this is what we confess, if this is what we hold to, that it is important for us to consider what implications it has for us in our ministry, in our lives, in the broader society. Let's consider the first one for government and society. One philosopher of recent note said that, that Christianity, he wrote a book called Ten Things That Are Good About Religion, and one of the things that he talked about was that Christianity provided society with a healthy pessimism. It does. 
Christianity does provide a healthy pessimism because it begins with man's depravity, his sinfulness. However, when that is lost, you have in government and in society an unhealthy optimism. We have seen it since the latter part of the 19th century. Man, endeavoring to pull himself up by his brute straps, has essentially endeavored time and time again, failed time and time again to create utopia. But the belief was that he could. If man could just fix the little flaws that he had wrong with him, then all would be well. But fundamentally, man doesn't have problems that can be fixed apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ. He is utterly fallen, destitute and averse to all good and righteousness. This is inherent in his nature. And therefore, our founding fathers were wise when they formed our government to consider this fact that man, our men are basically sinful. You can look at the history of the United States and see it. Our country, or any country for that, for that matter, is fraught with a history of fallen man. And so when we look at government, it is vital that we never look at government in a, in a way as if to assume that it could take the place of God and provide for what man is lacking, because what he's lacking is righteousness. And the only one who can provide it is Christ. It also affects the way we look at sin and mental illness. Consider in our day today that no one is a sinner, no one is sinful. In fact, there is a mental illness... Or a disorder for everything that's wrong. There is a pill for everything that's wrong. I think a couple of years back they came out with IED. It was called intermittent explosive disorder. They said this is a disorder people get when they're driving in traffic and they become angry at the people around them and then they will do things that are, that are not nice. You didn't know you had a disorder, did you? You see, we have a disorder for everything. And so we, look at, we don't look at people as basically sinful. We see them as just they have some disorders and with a little medication and a little therapy, we can fix it. No, we can't. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there aren't legitimate cases of mental disorder. There are. But it's so pervasive in our society to call any and everything by that stripe that indeed... It's come to the place of just being ridiculous. For the Christian, he must look at the sins. For the pastor, he must look at the lives of his members within the light of God's Word. And often, what one will use as a crutch for sin, the pastor must call out as sin. And he must beckon them to repentance and to the grace of Jesus Christ. Also for crime and punishment. We must come to the place where we realize that if man is basically depraved, there is no rehabilitation program that is going to be able to undo the effects of their depravity. For as well-intentioned as these things may be, at the end of the day, as the prophet tells us, as the dog returns to his vomit, so the fool returns to his folly. I don't know that there's anybody in this room who doesn't have a family member where that's been played out over and over and over again. He thought, you know what? They're out of jail this time. Maybe they'll do right. Maybe they won't go back on the drugs. Maybe they'll stay away from those friends. And they don't. And mothers are hopefully optimistic, and yet they're always disappointed. 
for the family. The doctrine of total depravity has serious implications, necessary implications. Husbands, when you consider the the spiritual state of your wives, wives, when you consider your husbands, if you do not fundamentally understand that by nature they are depraved in their being, you're going to set yourself up for a great deal of disappointment and discouragement. And you're also going to be unwilling to forgive them when that depravity manifests itself in some way, shape, or form. What about our children? Our children, we must understand that every child that opens the womb is estranged from God. That they are depraved. You say, how terrible. This little bundle of joy, this little precious baby, you're speaking of this child as being depraved. Yes. And if you fail to understand it, you fail to understand it to their ruin. You will not discipline as you should. You will conclude that their problems are not as serious as you can and that you can fix it either by spanking them or giving them what they want. You'll set your heart on their destruction And you will provoke them to wrath, parents, if you fail at first to understand that they are depraved by nature. And that apart from the gospel, they will not know God, nor will they walk in His ways. Your children need loving discipline. They need to be corrected. But they need the gospel more than anything else. What about the church? What about evangelism? What about missions? So we consider evangelism and missions, we take the doctrine of total depravity and apply it to that situation. We must understand that we are not dealing with people people who are basically good and who if they will, they can come to God. We're dealing with those who are dead in trespasses and sins. They may not come to God. And that apart from the working of the Holy Spirit, There is no hope of them coming. Charles Spurgeon described the evangelistic task as passing out umbrellas in a lightning storm. He said, I give out the umbrella. That was the gospel. It's up to God who He decides to strike. And isn't that the way we go about our evangelism? Isn't it the way we must? Unless evangelism devolves into something of a high-pressure sales tactic where we almost want to just elicit a certain kind of response and if we do, then we've been successful. Evangelism's done, we can hang it up and go home. No, we can't. What about missions? How about the assumption of so many missionaries today who go into the foreign field basically assuming that the field to which they are going are just a bunch of ignorant and loving tribes people who are just so happy to hear about Jesus? Rarely is that the case. Our society, American society, loves to idealize the third world. We love to idealize foreign countries as being somehow more virtuous and better than we are because they're not benefited with so many of the things that we have. But you will find out before you're there too long that human nature is human nature is human nature no matter where you find it. We've never cut the brush of the Amazon to find a little tribe worshiping Jesus according to the regulated principle. The gospel has to be preached and it has to be preached in the power of the Holy Spirit so that they may know their sin and the provision for that sin which is Jesus Christ. For pastoral ministry, how many discouragements have been wrought upon the pastor's heart because he went into it with a naivety of believing that his people were not sinners. They're saints. 
How many of us went into the ministry with an idealism that said, the ministry, can there be... I mean, what are we going to do? We're going to hang out with a bunch of people who just love us and they just, they just want to be around us and they love hearing us preach. And when we come to them and we tell them that they're in sin, they're just going to be so thankful that we told them that and they're going to repent. It doesn't happen, does it? It does, but only by the grace of God. There's a healthy realism that has to take hold of the pastor if he's to be carry on faithfully through the years. Church discipline has to take this into account. What about yourself? You fail to understand the doctrine of total depravity. You have fundamentally failed to understand yourself. And in failing to understand yourself, you have not rightly understood your God. Nor have you rightly come to a place where you understand His grace. God's goodness means nothing apart from His severity and the wrath which burns in His breast against the sinfulness of man. If your sins are not great, if they don't stink high to the heavens, then your salvation was of little worth. And we might ask the question, what is so amazing about grace? Nothing. If you're going to evaluate yourself within the light of the gospel, you must first start with your own depravity, your own inability, your own insufficiency. And you must turn to Jesus Christ with whom is all sufficiency. And His grace is sufficient for you. Amen for your sin. Here's the wonder of the Gospel, brethren. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. The only thing greater than man's depravity is God's grace. In the words of the Apostle Paul, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Amen? Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for this time which You've given us to meditate upon Your Word and to consider this most important doctrine as we've endeavored to make application. We pray, Father, that by Your Holy Spirit You would come and take this message and that part of it which is, which is right and good, You would apply it to our hearts. Lord, that You would impress upon our minds the depth of our sin, the sinfulness of our sin, and the stench of it. That we would be taken with our depravity, its universality, its comprehensiveness, and its insurmountability. And that You would raise before our eyes the banner of Jesus Christ, washed in His blood, which atones for our sin. Calls us, Lord, and bring us, we pray, to a new and more profound appreciation of the grace which is in Christ Jesus only after we have seen the awfulness of our sin. I pray, Heavenly Father, for those who are here tonight who do not know You, who live, as it were, still under the dominion and power of sin, I pray for the one who has never encountered this doctrine 
and who at the present moment is trembling with a felt sense of His unworthiness. I pray, Heavenly Father, that by Your Holy Spirit You would regenerate Him by the grace which is in Christ Jesus. You would save Him gloriously to Yourself. That You would redeem Him by Your blood. That You would cause Him to turn from His sin and to trust Himself entirely to the merits and righteousness of Jesus alone. And I know, Heavenly Father, that You can do this. And so, Lord, we pray that You would do this work. But for those of us who are here and we have walked with You a great while, and for those of us who have allowed the sinfulness of our sin to have the sharpness of it blunted, or in any sense to have the holiness of God muted, I pray that You would arrest us with a renewed sense of our unworthiness before Thee. That we would own this doctrine and that it would own us and that it would cause us to turn in unfeigned contrition, renewing our faith and repentance this night. Oh, how we thank You, Father, for Your Word. How we thank You that You have saved us from such great sin by the blood of Your Son. Cause us, we pray, to walk in the truth of Your Gospel. Cause us, we pray, over these next few days to take in these truths from Your Word with all faith and readiness of mind. For we know, Father, that these things will benefit us immensely and that they will bring You everlasting glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.